Good morning. It's really nice to get to be with you guys. I love Russell and have really uh, enjoyed our friendship and appreciate uh, the opportunity to get to uh, do this with you today. Um, the really important stuff that you ought to know about me can be told in a story. Uh, we moved to Houston about 32 years ago in view of a call of a church over on the southwest side of Houston. I preached that morning and that night. Uh, we had a town hall meeting where everybody in the church could come and ask questions about whatever they wanted to ask questions about, your theology, your family, your hobbies. They could, and I'd been answering questions for about 45 minutes. And uh, at the end of that 45 minutes, the oldest living member of the church was kind of back over in that part of the room. And he raised his hand and he said, son, I'm tired of talking to you. I want to hear from your son. Now, he could call me son, I mean, from your wife. He could call me son because I was 27 he was 83. And so he, he got away with that. Uh, he said, I want to hear from your wife. Well, Betty is a kindergarten, first grade teacher. She actually taught for 14 years here at Gregory Lincoln uh, before she retired about a year ago. And uh, she loves kids, but she hates getting up in front of people, uh, uh, grown-ups and talking. She very dutifully came to the platform. She grabbed hold to the pulpit and, that was there. And, and he said, I want to know how you feel about moving to Houston. And she looked down at the floor for what seemed like an eternity to me. I was pretty sure she had frozen and was just going to, the job offer was going to be off the table before this was all over with. And then she looked up and she said, Mr. Cosby, um, we lived in Monroe, Louisiana, where we started college and we had a baby. And we moved to Fayetteville, Arkansas, where we finished our college degrees and we had a baby. And we moved to Fort Worth, where Jim did his seminary work. And while we lived in Fort Worth, we had a baby. And she looked down at the floor, and with the timing of a stand-up comic, she looked back up and she said, Frankly, Mr. Cosby, I'm a little nervous about moving to Houston. <laughs> and about 18 months later, Amanda was born. <laughs> and every, every person in the church remembered that story and uh, told it frequently. And then we adopted Ryan uh, several years later, so we had five children and, uh, and four grandchildren. And I don't think Betty is here. Uh, our youngest daughter and her husband are on a trip to New York, and we're keeping uh, our grandson, Elliot. And normally, he would be awake at this time and would have come with us, but about an hour before time to come. I think he got word that I was preaching, and he got sleepy and, and fell asleep, and so I, I think Betty's at home with him. Um, so I remember the first time that I, uh, that I read this, this passage that was read to you earlier. I want to read it again. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prison, recover your sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And He closed the book, and He gave it again to the minister and sat down, and the eyes of all of them were there in the synagogue, uh, were fastened on Him. And He began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your hearing. I remember the first time that I read this passage, and I felt like I heard the Holy Spirit say, and I'm a Baptist guy, I'm not a Pentecostal guy. Pentecostal guys actually hear the voice of God. Baptist guys get impressions. So I had this thought, I had this sense that the Holy Spirit was speaking to me. And, and, and what, what the Spirit says is that this is Jesus declaring his mission. And then I heard these words. How can you call yourself a follower of Jesus if his mission is not also your mission. Today I'd like to unpack the answer to that question as it's worked itself out in my own life. I grew up in a church that was really faithful to Orthodox theology. Uh, if, if you're a church person at all, if you've been around the church very much at all, if you hadn't, it's okay. But if you have, you would know that in Orthodox theology, what they would say is that Jesus was fully human and fully divine. I got taught that from my earliest, I, mean, I grew up in the church, in my earliest memories, I, I, I heard that, 
uh, that, that he was fully human and fully divine, um, and, and that's true. And what's also true is as a child, it was not possible for me to get my head around that. It wasn't possible for me to hold all of that in, in tension because you have to hold two things that seem opposite and contradictory in the same space, and I just wasn't capable of doing that. And as I became an adult and I looked back, what I, what I came to, to realize was that in the actual inner workings of my own heart and mind, my own thinking, the way that got translated was, it got translated in a certain way because in our inability to hold all of that intention, what we did was we focused on the divinity of Jesus and not so much on the humanity of Jesus. And so nobody ever said what I'm about to say to you, but here's the way it played out in my, in my little 8-year-old or 10-year-old or 13-year-old brain. It's like there was this picture of Jesus in the crib thinking to himself, only 31 more years and I can get out of this place. Or being at the temple with, 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 when his parents let, when, he, when he got left at the temple on the, uh, on the family trip to the temple, he got left and, and, he, and Mary and Joseph come back and he says, I, I, you know I have to be about my father's business. It's, it's like that's God speaking to us. Um. The, the, the problem with focusing only on the divinity and not on the humanity, there's actually two problems. One is, if you focus on the divinity, then Jesus is not someone I can follow. He's someone I can respect and honor, but he's not someone I can follow because I'm not God. I'm not divine. The other problem with only focus on the divinity is that it makes Christianity a set of beliefs where we look at what the right beliefs are, but we never look at what the right practices are that we find in the life of Jesus. So this morning, I wanna, uh, I'm going to ask you to join me in looking at the humanity of Jesus. It's going to require you to suspend judgment for a few minutes, but if, if you can do that, I, I believe God has something to say to us today. If it's true that he was fully human, then there's much for us to learn by looking at that part of his nature. And, and in fact, in Philippians 2, if, if you're familiar with, the, with uh, the, the writings of Paul, there's this uh, verse in, in, in chapter 2 of Philippians that says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not e uh, consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather... He made himself nothing. The, the, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I know two or three Greek words. And the Greek word there is the word kenosis. And what it means is that he emptied himself. He emptied himself of his divinity for a, for a season of time and became like us. And so there is this, this reality of the, of the fully human Jesus. And in, in the context of him being fully human, I want to go back to the text that we read. In that text where Jesus declares his mission... Jesus was preaching his very first public sermon. And he declares that he is anointed to preach good news to the poor, freedom to the prisoner. This is going to drive me crazy. I'll get this fixed in a minute. Recovery of sight for the blind. He's called to set the oppressed free and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. I want to wonder with you today, how did Jesus decide that that was his mission? If he was fully human, then, then he, his mission had to be discerned in the same way that you and I discern our calling in life. So I want to, I want to rehearse with you a series of events that led up to this sermon. 
Jesus was raised in the home of Mary and Joseph, who told him stories as a, as a preschooler about virgin births, about angels and shepherds. Like any other child, Jesus heard those stories and He had to make sense of them. Many of you who have children know that children who hear adult stories make sense of them in one way when they're two, in a different way when they're eight, in a different way when they're 13, in a different way when they're 25. And so all of that is in the, in, in the making of Jesus. Like any child, He made sense of those stories over time. At 12, His parents find Him talking with the leaders in the temple and He astounds them with His wisdom. And, and, he, and he wonders with His parents, didn't you know that I had to be... In my father's house, there is some sense that even at 12 years of age, Jesus was discerning some kind of call on his life. Around 30, he goes to John to be baptized. Cousin. And in that baptism experience, he is taken under the water, and as he comes up, he hears this voice that says, You are my beloved son. I want to wonder with you if in the humanity of Jesus, there had been this growing sense of call, and in that moment of baptism, there was a crystal clear sense of, I am the Messiah. I am the Anointed One. I am the one that the Old Testament Scriptures have been talking about. And a part of what gives me some sense that that's what's so, is that immediately after that awareness comes to Jesus, to the fully human Jesus, He goes out into the wilderness. And for 40 days he fasted and he prayed. But what I want to suggest to you is that one way you, one way you can understand that temptation story, one way you can understand that story is to understand it as a, um, as a, a conflict that Jesus had over two versions, two visions of what it meant to be the Messiah. Um, one of those visions or one of those versions was the Messiah was going to be a conquering king. And one of those who was going to restore Israel to political prominence. He was going to set up an army and a treasury. Uh, He was going to run the Roman occupiers out of Israel and Israel was going to be restored to to its former political power. He was going to be a conquering king. But there is another version or vision that you find in the Scriptures uh, that that is more about the Messiah being a suffering servant who would give his life as a ransom for many. And so he's in the wilderness and he's struggling with a suffering servant and a conquering king. And all three of the stories that you read in that, I hope you'll go back and read that in the third and fourth chapters of of the Gospel of Luke, all of those stories are about him, him agonizing over that choice made me wonder, as I was still just trying to figure out how Jesus figured out what his mission was, in his human experience, he would have had a lot of experience with suffering. An out-of-wedlock pregnancy that shamed the entire family. Anyone here have an experience of deep shame that impacts the way you see yourself? and the way you see the world. Living in poverty at the hands of a brutal occupying army, it is reasonable to believe that Jesus had seen members of his own family, maybe he himself had experienced the brutality of the Roman occupying army. Anyone here grow up in poverty 
or in an experience, or, or, or anyone here ever experienced the brutality of abuse? I just want to wonder with you how that shapes the way you see yourself and the way you see the world. Or living as refugees in Egypt. Anyone here ever been run out of your own home or forced to live in exile away from family and friends? How did that shape how you saw yourself and how you saw the world that you live in? Living in deep fear of being killed if the family returned from Egypt. Anyone here ever been terrorized or stalked or feared for your life? See, when Jesus was considering these two versions of what it meant to be Messiah, he had a lot of first-hand experience, not with, you know, first-world suffering kind of problems, but the kind of suffering that really uh, uh, can break the human spirit and that, that touches the deepest parts of, of who we are. All of those would have influenced how Jesus experienced his life and God's calling to him. I'm not saying that it was only Jesus' experience that led him to the sense that God called him to the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed. But I am saying that it's one stream of influence that when we think about the fully human Jesus, that we can find a way of connecting our own life to his. The other stream of influence, if the first one was his experience, the the second stream of influence would have been his deep knowledge of the Scripture. Uh, You see, the record of, of uh, of the sermon that Jesus was preaching that we read out of Luke 4 at the beginning of this this sermon, actually a version of that comes from uh, Luke 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord, not Luke, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for, for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So that Jesus' sermon had come right out of Isaiah uh, 62, 1 and 2. And, and then there's, there's a passage in Isaiah 58, 6 through 12. And I want to set that passage up for you. Isaiah is, a, uh, is, is, a, is a, one of the prophets who wrote while the people of Israel were in exile. They had been driven away from their homeland. They were, they were living in a place that was occupied by, by an occupying army. And, and they, had, they, they just had cried out to God that he would restore them, that he'd take them home, that he would allow them to, uh, to, to go back to, the, to the, 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 the place of their homeland. And in Isaiah 58, what's happening is the people of God are just crying out to God. And they're almost shaking their fist in a kind of whiny, pouty voice that says, What is the deal, God? We worship, we pray, we fast, and you're silent. What's wrong with you? And it was true. They were engaged in all kinds of worship activities and all kinds of fasting and all kinds of... They were engaged in all kinds of religious activity. But here's what they weren't doing. Isaiah says to the people... This is not the kind of fasting I've chosen for you. Instead, that kind of religious activity. Here's the kind of fasting I've chosen for you. To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry? The kind of fast I'm looking for from you is to share your food with the hungry. 
to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked, to clothe them, and and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will appear quickly. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. So in this Advent season, we face the same challenges that Jesus faced in the wilderness. It's the challenge of two choices, the choice of following the conquering king or of following the suffering servant. Our world's actually made up two versions of Christmas for each of those visions or versions. The Christmas that follows the conquering king is one that tells you that your worth and value is found in what you possess and what you consume. It's a version that makes religious people insiders who objectify those who see the world differently, judging and condemning them, viewing them as people to be conquered, to be overcome. It's a world that's seen far too often on Facebook and on Twitter and unfortunately in the local church as well. The suffering servant view of Christmas says that you have inherent worth and value, whether you're rich or poor, black or white, straight or gay, Muslim or Christian, because God so loved the world. It's a world where I find my life by giving it away, where I gain my life by losing it. It's a world where I'm called not only to love God and neighbor and self, but to actively, personally love strangers and enemies. One of the many things that I love about Jesus is his integrity. You see, in Luke 4, he stands up and preaches this sermon about his mission being to the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed. But he doesn't just say that's his mission and call us to that mission. He does does what he says. Go back and read the gospel stories again. And what you'll find is his life is just marked over and over by encounters with women who in his day and age were among the most oppressed human beings on the planet. They were considered a little more worthy than oxen, but they were considered property. And he related to them with dignity and honor and respect. He related to lepers, people who were, who were considered so unclean that they had to be colonized away from the rest of people. Not only did he move toward them, he touched them and he embraced them. He engages tax collectors, enemies of the state, Jewish people who were working for the occupying Romans, Zacchaeus, Matthew, who he invited into his inner circle. The Roman centurion who came asking him to, say, to help with his sick servant. An, it would be like somebody from Al-Qaeda occupying the United States and having been there for a long time and then coming to you and saying, could you please help my servant? You see, Jesus doesn't just talk about loving the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed. He actually did that over and over and over and over again. In my own life, in my own journey, I grew up in a Baptist tradition and, uh, and I know all the right theology, but I didn't get taught very many of the right practices. 
I was not called to this very much for a long, long time. And, and about 20 years ago, Betty and I began to experience this kind of encounter with God. And, and the result was that we ended up moving to Montrose. We had lived in southwest Houston. And I was the executive director of, of Union Baptist Association here in, in, in Houston. And we moved right up here to Beaumar and, and Taft. Uh, we, we came to plant a church. Uh, and, and through no real intentionality of our own, other than that we wanted to be in a community with people that wouldn't be like the folks that we'd been hanging out with at church, we ended up with a church full of people who were in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction. And they became intimately in- connected in our lives, meals in our homes, sleeping on our couches. I've been to 90 meetings in 90 days more than any sober guy you've ever met. I mean, they were just in our lives. And when I tell that story, often what people will say is, they'll say, oh, you and Betty are such great people. And I always say to them, you missed the point. See, what happened was when I began to put, hang out with poor and marginalized and oppressed people, I got really clear really quickly how much I didn't look like Jesus. I, I, I learned really quickly how I do really well in a controlled environment when I'm in charge. But... but get outside of that compartmentalization and get off script and I become angry and controlling and judgmental and I will do whatever it takes to get you to do what I want you to do. And that's not a very pretty sight, but it is what became true in my own life. And it got put on full display and and it's almost as if Jesus was saying to me, "I I don't need you to serve the poor, the marginalized, and oppressed. You need the poor, the marginalized, and oppressed because what they're going to do and reveal to you about my work in your life. You see, one version of Christianity, that conquering king says that what I need to do is I need to just love me and mine. I need to take care of the folks who, who, who look like me and smell like me and share my values and live at my socioeconomic level. But the other version, the suffering servant version, calls us to love God and neighbor and self and stranger and enemy. Not like writing a check so that somebody on the other side of the world can do that, but in your life, who are the oppressed people? In your office building, in your neighborhood, in your, the, the groups that you're a part of, they are around, and the suffering servant view calls us to that. There's an old story told about the chief of a Native American tribe. One day he and his son were on a walk, and, and the, the chief said to his grandson, In every person there are two wolves, and they are fighting. One of the wolves is angry and wicked. He's greedy filled with lust. He's deceitful and selfish. And he uses the earth for every and the earth and everything in it for his own selfish purposes. The other wolf is good. He's generous and kind, loving and patient. He treats others with respect and honor. He stewards the earth for the sake of others. These two wolves are in a ferocious battle within each one of us. It's the battle these are Jim's words now, of the conquering king and the suffering servant. The grandson pondered what the granddad had said for a few long moments of silence. And then, in only the way that a child can do, he looked into his grandfather's eyes, full of curiosity, And ask the question, which one will win? 
The old chief replied, the one you feed. For those with ears to hear and eyes to see, the battle that Jesus fought in the wilderness, the one where his mission to the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed, where it became clear to him, the one that he calls us to today, that battle is still raging. How we celebrate Christmas, who we celebrate it with, and how we live the rest of the year as a result of that will be determined by which wolf you feed. One will lead you to a select group of people that you like and that you're polite with and maybe you have some affection for. And the other will call you to a love for God, for neighbor, for self, for enemy, for stranger. Hear these words of Jesus again as he called you to, and me to his mission. He said in that sermon, he has sent me. And if he were here today, he would say, and I am sending you to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor.